Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Well, we almost made it through the entire series without having to do any sort of addendum recording. Uh, <laughs> we recorded the Titans episode a few weeks back, and then, of course, DeAndre Hopkins signs the week before this episode goes live. So we're addressing that at the top of the show here. You're going to hear uh, the show that we previously recorded after this, and it's it's largely still exactly the same uh, with the one small caveat of, oh, by the way, DeAndre Hopkins is a Titan. Or not so small, uh, depending on how you view D-Hop at this stage of his career, but it is a it is a big ad for the football team. Maybe not the same ad that it would have been four or five years ago, but that doesn't mean he is not going to bring impact to this team. He is easily the most experienced wide receiver they add to their front three. Uh, I think in terms of we talk about building a room all the time, he does bring a different skill set than the two other guys that are going to be starting with him, Traylon Burks and Nick Westbrook-Akine. Like, it is a good mix. It is a good fit. I think as long as expectations are reasonable uh, for what he's going to produce, this is a solid ad. Well, let's talk about those reasonable expectations because I think, and, and I'm guilty of this myself, when I first uh, you know, heard it, I was like, okay, DeAndre is going to be the X. Maybe they don't feel like Traylon's ready to be the X, and and Traylon will be kind of like a, a moving piece that plays both Z and in the slot. And then you got Nick Westbrook-Akine, who can kind of play a little bit of everything. You got Kyle Phillips, who's more of a dedicated slot type. And, you know, in the episode that you're about to hear, we talked about this receiving core, you know, saying, like, the top three guys we feel pretty good about. You also throw in Chig as well. You throw in Derrick Henry. Like, the skill position group is good. They're just exceptionally thin. And when I heard about Hopkins, I was like, all right, he's going to be the X. We're four deep at receiver now. All the other guys can kind of move around. I no longer believe that's the spot he's going to play. And I, I went back and I watched a lot of Cardinals tape from last year. Uh, was not, not a fun time for me. <laughs> but I, I watched what Hopkins brought to the table last year. And I also went back and watched uh, when he was still with the Texans in 2019 under Tim Kelly, who's his offensive coordinator again in Tennessee, because I wanted to see, uh, A, what's the skill set still like, or rather, what's the talent still like, and, and B, what role did Kelly have him playing earlier? He's going to be a big slot for them, believe it or not. And even back in 2019, you know, still prime Hopkins years, about 40% of his snaps that year were in the slot. They were treating him as a big slot even back then. And then you go watch uh, what he did in Arizona last year, and, you know, even though he's still a great route runner, He's got exceptional hands. He can post people up. He's good in the red zone, all that kind of stuff. I no longer think that he has the vertical juice to separate, like, down the field as an outside receiver. Uh, Press coverage, which sounds blasphemous because it's DeAndre Hopkins, press coverage gave him a lot of trouble last year. Uh, He just didn't quite have that extra gas, you know, when you're in your third and fourth step and you're trying to climb on top of the corner and get outside, he just didn't have that anymore. And so I I do feel like Tim Kelly pitched him on the role that he had already played under him significantly before in Houston, say, come be our big slot, 
Traylon has all the gas in the world to play outside. He's not going to have any trouble separating vertically. And then, you know, we got uh, Westbrook Akine, and we got Kyle Phillips that can kind of do other stuff for us. We got Shig who can do other stuff for us. So I, I kind of feel like that's how they pitched him of, of, you know, you are a different flavor of slot for us while also at the same time, please help get Traylon Burks ready to be the guy. Absolutely. And I think the the interesting sort of interplay here is going to be between Chig and D-Hop on the inside mm-hmm. because you can use those two guys on either side somewhat interchangeably on routes. And that's weird because they're different body types, but they play the same way. Chig, I would say, has more gas at this point. So if you're going to yeah. go a little bit deeper down the seam, maybe Chig, that's... Chig's got more gas than most people, though. It's true. <laughs> and you can really swap sides in almost what becomes a four vert set with those two guys on the inside. And that's going to create some fits. They're going to create some mismatches for linebackers. And like you said, I don't think Hopkins can climb on the outside anymore. And I think defenses know that so Mm -hmm. they can really play cloud. They can play over the top and really cap that off. And when you move him inside and give him the two way go and give him another player, uh, you know, to his left or to his right, depending on where he lines up, that can do very similar things or even stack them on the same side. Now you're starting to have some fun combinations where you can create some of the space and mismatches. And if folks concentrate on him, well, it remains to be seen whether or not they'll do that defensively. But if they start to concentrate on him, it's going to open up a lot of space for those other three guys as well. So I think it's a good role for where he is, I'll call it, in phase of his career. Uh, it's reasonable. They have good expectations, and he can probably succeed there. And that's what you're looking for when you bring a player in. And the money's decent too. You know, it's 13 million a year. Um, there are incentives that could get up uh, to 16 million. So relative to the rest of the receiver market, that's like half of the top end that we expect for Justin Jefferson. Eventually, Jamar Chase. Um, you know, Waddle's eventually going to get that kind of money. Who knows what T. Higgins is going to get? Um, you know, but he's, <laughs> he's get. get 25. <laughs> you know, AJ got 26, something like that. So, like, relative to the rest of the market, it's a pretty decent deal all around. I, I do want to mention, though, and, and I know that this is old news for Titans fans and they, they want to get over it at this point, but I feel like at this point I would have just paid A.J. Brown what he wanted, you know, so that we didn't have to do this the next year and invest a top pick in Traylon Burks and still pay money to DeAndre Hopkins. Like, I feel like the easiest solution was to just pay, J, pay A.J. at the time, and and now we're kind of scrambling to catch up here. And they, they did an admirable job of doing that, but I also feel like in, a, in an alternate universe, they probably just paid Brown. Yeah, sometimes there's shifting sands behind the scenes that we don't see. There's conflicts. Maybe a player doesn't want to be there. Maybe they are absolutely convinced they will get more eventually by going elsewhere, whether that's because of system fit or market, any number of things. And can never really say definitively this is why somebody stayed or went. But, yeah, if you're just looking at the numbers, it looks a whole lot easier to just keep (laughs) A.J. Brown. Um, what was interesting to me is like Evan Ingram's extension. And again, Evan Ingram is ostensibly a tight end and D hops money is pretty similar. Is it? It's not far off. And when everybody was saying, Oh, well, that's fine money for Ingram. And I said something like, Hey, that's, you know, it's a little high for wide receiver three money because that's eventually, or basically what he's going to do with Jacksonville. The Jacksonville stands got on me a little bit about that. Cheers up to Duval. They get on everybody. That's right. Cheers up to Duval. You reacted. That's good. 
Um, and like two days later, like D hop signs for what's very similar money. And I was like, he's essentially going to be a wide receiver three here behind yeah. Traylon and probably Chig. And it's similar. And I just thought it was a funny juxtaposition between like, well, would you rather have D hop at the stage of his career playing inside as a wide receiver three, or would you rather have Evan Ingram playing as a, you know, multiple piece that you can move around uh, that was featured a bit more down the stretch, certainly for Jacksonville and is a younger player, but money straight up and NFL as it is with different designations between tight end and wide receiver. We understand that, but I just thought it was funny to say, well, they're, pretty much doing the same thing and they're pretty much getting the same money so who would you rather have one last question because you did mention that you think that the the uh, order of operations here is going to be Traylon Chig then D Hop right now if you go on underdog I'm going to put you on the spot here mm. if you go on underdog mm-hmm. it's if I recall correctly the day after he signed they put it at 875 in terms of Ooh. pass uh, or receiving yardage receiving for yards. the year Traylon I believe was 825 do you think D-Hop gets over 900 yards on the year? And second question, do you think Burks outproduces him still? I'll take him in reverse order. I hope for the Titans' sake that Burks well outproduces D-Hop this year because I think he should. He has the talent and skill set to do that. It's year two. We saw some nice flashes he's going to have to continue to develop. And I think, look, this is an underrated part of this entire signing is that he's going to be able to learn those things from D-Hop now Mm -hmm. um, and say, hey, when you could run this route, when you did have the gas, what were some of the things that you did? Because he has an incredibly successful NFL career already. That's just going to help Traylon Burks. So I hope he takes all those lessons and his, you know, still burgeoning physical gifts and blows the lid off and goes out and gets 11 or 1200 yards. That'd be great for the Titans. Um, I think the line for Hopkins is pretty good, right? Where it's at. It's, it's, it's not dead a, on where I'm kind of like, Ugh. it's not a line that makes me want to go in either direction. And that means it's a pretty good line. Um, just, you know, throwing a dart, I would say under, but like by like 25 yards. I think if you're in a PPR league, not to derail this too much into fantasy, if you're in PPR, Go for it because he's going to get a million catches. Yeah, I just don't think the chunk plays are still going to be there. That's still going to be Traylon Burks and probably Chig quite a mm-hmm. bit, especially after the catch. Chig is a monster after the catch. Yeah. Um, I, I think if if you're struggling with who to invest in, and we'll get, we'll get to this later in the show. If you're struggling with who to invest in in the Titans' offense now that they have DeAndre, get Chig at a discount, get Tannehill at a discount. And then if you feel very strongly <laughs> about Hopkins getting over 900 yards, you can invest in him there too. Um, but I I think in terms of best value, Tannehill's probably the best value you're going to get. And Chig is still, even at his ADP, Chig is still undervalued in my opinion too because he is a fucking freak. Um, so yeah, we're going to have links down below. Uh, use promo code bootleg over underdog fantasy. They'll match your deposit up to $100. So whatever you put in up to $100, they'll match it. They'll give you up to 100 extra that you can use on anything on the platform, whether it's the season-long pick'ems, uh, whether it's, you know, the week-by-week pick'ems, if you're doing best ball drafts, uh, you know, and anything that you guys uh, use that promo code for directly helps the show and helps us do more of this coming from uh, beautiful Puget Sound in Washington. Uh, all right, EJ, you have your daughter's birthday party to get to. I have a bunch of other Titans assets <laughs> to send to our editors, so we're going to go do that. But enjoy the rest of the show. It's a long one. And remember, the rest of the AFC South is coming after this. So with that, let's roll the show.
Welcome, welcome to the Bootleg Football Podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Brett Coleman, here with my wonderful co-host, EJ Snyder, uh, out here in a uh, temporarily still somewhat overcast uh, downtown Los Angeles. I'm sure that's going to burn off uh, shortly and, and make lighting this thing uh, impossible once again, as, as has been our experience during this series. But. A lovely and athletic <laughs> process, keeping up with the light in the natural light in LA this summer. I, man... I, I was really terrible at lighting when we started filming this, and I've just basically had to speed run my way through a master's degree figuring this shit out. But it's okay. It's okay. I, hopefully the content has still been uh, palatable for folks. Visible. Have, yeah, visible <laughs> for people that have watched this entire series. Uh, it's Titans Day, you know, as we alluded to before, a team that is not being paid attention to whatsoever. Uh, we even have some friends in the media, like our, our buddy Ben Solak, uh, you know, was uh, was speculating that this could be a, a sneaky team to compete for like a top five pick in the draft. Uh, for the record, love Ben, does great work. Uh, I, I could not disagree with that more, uh, mainly because this is a Mike Rabel coach team. And that's like the equivalent to me of a Mike Tomlin coach team, which is it doesn't really matter how bad they are because their their record's never going to reflect how bad they are. Like this team will always scratch and claw and fight and win games that on paper they're not supposed to win. So they're never going to have a top five pick. They're just not. Mike Vrabel's too good of a coach. This defense is too good. Like it is it is literally just Steelers South to me. And I think that. Perhaps for some Titans fans, that can cause a little bit of frustration because they're never going to be in a position to to do a true teardown and rebuild like we've seen, uh, you know, the Bengals do, uh, like we've seen, um, you know, the Bills do, and, and you know, a lot of the other AFC powers, the Chargers, uh, the Dolphins that that are really at the top of the conference. Well, they picked in the top five. You know, the Jags got Trevor Lawrence at number one. Titans are never going to be bad enough to do that. And so they kind of have to build a championship contender the hard way. Uh, starting at the middle of the pack, nailing drafts, finding values in free agency. Like, it's it's definitely playing the league on hard mode. But at the same time, when they do go on their runs, which they have gone on their runs over the last several years... I almost feel more satisfied watching them make it work that way because I know that they were not the beneficiaries of having generational quarterbacks fall into their lap in the right year, <clears throat> Jacksonville. <laughs> yeah, and they're never going to be that way because it's just not the way they're built. Now, we're going to see some changes most likely in the way they're built because they changed GMs. But again, that power structure that really runs through Rabel, that's very clear at this point. He, he won that battle. He is the voice in the room in that organization. And it's this team is going to reflect him and, and the way that he wants to play, the way he wants to build, the way he wants to acquire talent. And it is a bit of a zag where the rest of the league is sort of zigging. And it does very much to me also feel like Tomlin Light or Tomlin Jr. Like he is the next one in line to do it that way. Because Tomlin, for the most part, hasn't deviated from how he wants to do it either. He has adapted with the league as it's changed, and I think Vrabel will do some of that. But there is a, I don't want to say old school, there is a hard-nosed approach to how this team is built on both sides of the ball. 
They are not all about stacking the wide receiver core with flashy playmakers, uh, as we'll talk about today. They're going to do it their way, and the results are never going to be worse than medium. And when they do hit on their particular philosophy, which we've seen really recently, and this is the part that sort of amazes or surprises me, is this team probably leads the league in not being talked about. Like, yeah. There is less airtime in general about Titans football than almost any other what I would call good or solid football team. There's a lot of a lot of ink and press aimed at, you know, bad but improving teams and a lot of ink and press aimed at the sort of top five to eight teams in the league. And there's this vast middle and the Titans are just kind of floating in that sea. And I think they're more anonymous than they should be because they've shown very recently they can be a very good, very powerful football team that can be a contender late into the season and into the playoffs. But nobody's treating them that way. They were what seven and two, seven and three, something like that before you know injuries finally caught up to them last year. But I, I, like they they took the Chiefs to overtime, completing what like five passes the entire game. Like th this is a good team. They were in the AFC Championship two years ago. Like. What are we doing here? <laughs> yeah, and that's the thing is it's it's a bit of a recency bias. They had yes. a down year, and really, as you pointed out, it was a down half the year. They were on their exact regular, I'll just call it Titans trajectory, through the first eight or nine games. Injuries caught up with them, and they slid to the finish, and how quickly we forget, right? It's the ultimate recency bias. Last year, they finished 7-10. and 10, Still second in the division, home record of three and five, road record of four and five. Really, the last five games doomed them. Zero oh and five again, late into that injury spate. They weren't giving anybody a game, but in the first half of the season, a very different team that looked like it was going to produce the very similar, I would say at this point, expected, and that's a good mm -hmm. thing. Titans result of yeah, we're going to be right up there. We're going to contest for the division. We're probably going to win it. We're going to roll into the playoffs. And then, unfortunately, we're we're going to you know experience an early exit from the playoffs. That also has been a bit of a Titans hallmark that Vrabel's going to have to get over, much like Andy Reid had with his Philadelphia tenure, where everybody said, "Oh, he can, does well every year. His teams are good every year, but can't win the big one." And then he could. And I feel like Vrabel will do that at some point as well. But they were on that path, fell off because of injuries midseason, and now everybody's just like. Zoop. We're not going to talk about the Titans. Looking at the uh, effectiveness summary, which is what we you know we look at for EPA per play for a bunch of different categories, I want to preface this by saying that they finished with the 26th best uh, you know power score, which is like our amalgamation of all the different EPA numbers and everything like that. They finished 26th best, but I think if we took the first half of the season, <laughs> they would have probably been like top 12, top 13, something like that. It's just their second half of the year was so garbage that it dragged them down that far. Yeah, it dragged the score into the muck. So again, as Brett said, EPA per play is our base stat for our effectiveness summary. We talk about rushing offense, passing offense, rushing defense, passing defense, then points scored and points allowed. Those are our six numbers. And we assign them their league rank. So we're comparing them against their peers. Lower is a better score. You want to be number one. Rushing offense, 26th, not a position Titans fans are used to. This is a top 10 rushing team with Derrick Henry pretty much every year. 26th is uncharted territory for them. Again, there was a reason for that. Passing offense, 22nd. 
little bit more familiar territory. The Titans are never, I feel like, going to be a top 10 passing team, even when they have sort of high flight weapons. That's not how they lean their offense. They're going to be fine if they're, say, a top five rushing team and a top 15 passing team, which they've been in the past. That's going to be great. But this last year slipped to 22nd. Again, if we took these numbers midseason, week nine, they're probably okay. It'd be very different. Rush defense. Number one, here's what you hang your hat on, Titans fans. Best in the league. Most stingy team against the run, and that is a very Vrabel component. (laughs) As a player, as a coordinator, now as a coach, this is something that Mike Vrabel is going to... I don't feel like he's ever going to veer away from this. He's never going to go, hey guys, it's okay if we're the 20th ranked run defense in the league. This is a point of pride for the Titans, and they're very, very good at it. Pass defense, on the other hand, and this might be the greatest disparity between two defensive EPA marks that we've seen. They were 28th against the pass. First against the run, 28th against the pass. Basically bottom of the league. Points scored, only 298. Again, in the modern NFL, if you can't throw the ball, you're not going to score that many points. Um, That put them in 28th place in the league. Points allowed, 359. 15th, that's, you know, Dead average as a scoring defense, that's okay. You can win with that if you have a high-powered offense putting up points. They didn't, and as a result, it ended up being a bit of a lost season for them, but still second in the division with all those numbers. Take those six scores, add them up, divide by six. We get our average, which we call the bootleg power score. It was 20. That was good enough, as you said, for 26th in the NFL. Again, a very down year for Titans fans. I expect all of those numbers, again, to rise. And if we'd taken the midseason, like we said, they would have. I bet they would have had a much closer to mid-pack finish in power score. Speaking specifically on the the past defense, it was a young secondary. Like, by November of last year, uh, their starting corners, it was, it was Christian Fulton, who I like a lot, but, you know, Roger McCurry was a rookie. Um, you know, Hooker's a young player at the nickel, like, uh, Caleb Farley uh, was a, a, a backup corner for them. He he hasn't worked out like they hoped, um, but it it's a young secondary overall, um, and so there was there was a lot of learning going on, a lot of lessons being taught. Uh, <laughs> fortunately, uh, you know, leads to to big chunk gains, especially against McCurry. Um, but uh, you know, you and I were also big fans of McCurry coming out, and we thought that that he does have a bright future, but asking a rookie to go out there and try to hold up it's it can be tough like not everybody's sauce gardener right where they they step in the league and they're a top five (laughs) no not everybody is sauce gardener that's a fair statement and you kind of saw that reflected in in the schematic numbers we always pull up these scheme stats um to kind of give context to the epa they called a lot of cover two they were 10th in cover two i feel like they wanted to protect these young corners quite a bit um, they also played a shit ton of quarters. They were second in quarters, which is also generally a way, um, well, depending on the type of quarters you're playing and with the type of quarters they were playing, I'm, I'm specifically referring to, um, you know, like protecting your backside corner with a safety sitting inside. So you're basically playing an inside out bracket, uh, on like the X receiver backside on a three by one. Um, they were not really asking McCurry to just hold up one-on-one outside against the X by himself. Um, That would have been massively irresponsible. (laughs) But they did play a lot of the types of quarters calls that um, 
that don't really put that big of a strain on their DBs, except for Fulton, who did take on a bunch of one-on-ones in those scenarios. But he was pretty much the only one they could really trust to do that, right? So they weren't calling a lot of cover one. Um, They were about average in that. Uh, They weren't calling a lot of zero. They were 18th in that. And uh, strangely, they didn't call a lot of cover three, which when I first saw the uh, the run defense EPA, I thought that, okay, it's a lot of, um, you know, what's called eight-man spacing. Layman's terms, we're putting a body in every single gap, right? We're playing middle field close coverage. We got the safety down. We're playing eight-man spacing against the run. Um, and, and you're going to have nowhere to go. But they were actually 25th in cover three. So they did a lot of that good work against the run from a too high safety look, which is even more impressive to me. Um, but overall, you know, kind of giving these coverage numbers, I, I think it indicated that they knew that their young corners were not all the way there yet. We'll see if that changes this year. But it was, uh, it, it was a tough spot for McCurry to be in. Yeah, and I think a lot of that success that they had from too high spacing against the run is Kevin Byard had a resurgent year. He was very good from the time he came into the league. He had a little bit of a dip year before last. Last year, he was back, and I mean back, back, Mm -hmm. like top 10 safety in the NFL back. And when you have a guy playing at that level, you know, which has been his standard during his time in Tennessee – it allows your defense to do a lot of things and you don't necessarily have to jam the box with eight guys to stop the run. And they were all very good against it. It's also a reflection of a lot of talent and a lot of investment and some really smart pickups along the defensive line. Not all those guys are high picks and a lot of them they get the best out of. Their defensive line is, I feel like, one of the best coached in the NFL. They're incredibly solid. And you combine that with some really good safety play from depth and you're able to stop the run out of what we would call a coverage-based defense, which, you know, again, if you can hold up on the outside is a tremendous advantage. They had young players there and in the slot and they got taken advantage of a little bit. But like you said, a lot of lessons learned. Um, Not going to be as easy to repeat those victories against them this year. So, you know, I don't want to call it lost. I feel like it was a... There were some strengths in there that showed off, again, areas that they're quite proud of and have invested in. And then there were some, uh, it won't be that easy to get it over on us next year moments. Uh, I looked up the exact numbers because I was curious. And, and please do take this with a, a, a somewhat grain of salt because I always, when I look back and I see that catches or touchdowns that were attributed to a player, sometimes like they mm. they weren't yeah. really their fault. Um, McCreary specifically gave up, again, take it with a grain of salt, the most yards on the team is about 719 yards as well as seven touchdowns. So even if we normalize that for taking away some of those catches and yards that that probably like weren't his fault if we were drawing it up on the whiteboard, still quite a bit, right? So he'll learn. Again, liked him a lot at Auburn. He was feisty as hell in college. He's got uh, a lot of skills, but NFL offensive coordinators are ruthless. Like, that's their job. If they win, they stay. If they lose, they go. And when they find a weak spot on tape, they will just push it. They just drive their finger into it and push that nerve as many times as they can until the other team can find a way to adjust and stop it. 
And if it's personnel-based, not necessarily scheme-based, and the two intertwine, but if they find a personnel weakness in a particular scheme and they know they can get one over on you, they're just going to keep calling it. They're not going to be like, okay, ease up, ease up, 10-run rule. Like, that doesn't exist in the (laughs) NFL. They're going to be like, get as many points off that route as you can, and they're just going to continue to push. And they push McCurry as a rookie, and until he bucks up, and we both think he has the skills to do that, but until he learns those lessons and makes some stops, gets some ball production like he had at Auburn, and says, "Uh uh-uh, not through my gap, they're going to keep doing it. Yeah. Uh, looking at their blitz percentage, which is tied in a little bit with their coverage, they were 23rd in bringing pressure on third and short situations, uh, which some teams bring a lot of pressure in third and short because they want to just get in the backfield. Titans were not one of those because their defensive line was so good that they didn't they didn't feel like they had to compromise themselves by you know bringing a nickel off the edge or anything like that. Third and medium, they were even less. They were 28th in blitz percentage again because they had a very, very good front four when they were healthy. Correct. Caveat. Uh, and they were 27th and third and long in blitz percentage. So this was this was a team that wanted to get home with four. Um, when they had all their dudes, they absolutely could. And then dudes started getting hurt. So, again, the story of this team was injury, injury, injury. On paper, their defensive line is still good enough to win with four this year. I would completely agree. And, again... We'll go with the underrated theme. I would say two out of the three guys on their three-man, you know, defensive line, defensive tackle rotation, aren't names that get talked about outside of circles of people that watch defensive and offensive line play and the interplay there. Danico Autry's a badass man. Danico Autry is a badass, and so is Tier Tart. We're going to talk about keeping him. Like he has a very particular role in that defense. It is not flashy. But it is key in the same way that DJ Reader is key in the Bengals defense. Like they don't play the same role, and I'm not saying they're the same player, but their importance to this particular defense is the same. And then the one that everybody talks about is Jeffrey Simmons, and rightfully so. He's a defensive superstar on the defensive line. But like two out of three are badasses and really good at their job, but the average NFL fan outside of Tennessee probably can't name them. And that feels very Titans-like, for lack yeah. of a better verb. Um or adjective. Uh, Harold Landry on the outside is somebody that they counted on to bring pressure. And this year they've added Arden Key. That creates their sort of front five. And they're very, like you said, dependent on those guys getting pressure from their spots without a lot of extra blitz. Um, again, playing cover two, it's difficult to blitz out of cover two. Typically leans on the middle linebacker. That guy's moved on as well. So it'll be interesting to see if that percentage shifts. Um, so, you know, I feel like they, it it does feel again, Steelers, like I hate going back to that, but it's like, we got our guys, we're going to run our system. You know, we're not going to blitz a ton. We're going to get our production from our guys. Um, we teach them up on our system. We draft them typically or acquire them based on what we like, which isn't the same thing as everybody else likes. I don't think that tier tart would be effective if you just dropped him into systems around the NFL. Like there are a few that he would. But I don't think he'd be the same player. Again, they are very good at matching skills to needs of their scheme, just like the Steelers are. And they get really good production from those guys, and they count on it. And when they're not there, the weakness might be that they don't adjust as readily. They're not as flexible when those guys go down and their backups aren't quite as good. One, uh, not not to like 
derail our format too much, but I, I want to bring this up now just because I, I found it so fascinating. And I'm going to be relying on you Titans fans uh, in the comments to let me know what the hell happened here. Uh, so David Long, very good linebacker. Love David Long. He's amazing. Um, you know, he moved on to Miami for $5 million, which I was like, oh, my God, that's an incredible deal for Miami. David Long's awesome. And then they signed Aziz Alshire to replace David Long, also at $5 million, roughly the same age. I think they're like seven months apart. What's going on there? Like, why not just keep David Long if we're just spending $5 million on a very good, you know, mid-20s linebacker? I, I would love to get some context in the comments because I... I truly don't know uh, what the order of operations was there. Again, happy they got Al Shire because he's awesome as well. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I just want to know why they let David Long walk out the building. It's always a fascinating piece of an NFL transaction when you're looking for the why of why a player was um, let go, uh, you know, or allowed to walk in this particular case, and why they replaced him with what feels like very much the same thing in terms of age and in terms of contract value and, in, and reasonably in terms of skill set as well. Like, why just keep the one you have that's familiar if you're going to be in the same range? Is there something going on that is unseen? Um, you know, when it's an obvious difference in age, oh, you got a lot younger or you get a value for a guy that's, you know, an ascending player, but, you know, isn't as big a name as the guy that's, you know, been playing on your roster. For, like those are obvious differences. You go, oh, okay, I get it. I get why they did it. Or we just knew that, you know, X guy didn't want to play for Y team and he was moving on no matter what. You go get whoever you can. And if it turns out the same age and money wise, okay. But look, he was never going to resign with blank here. It's sort of like, does he just like Cuban food? Like, what's going on? <laughs> this is X and this is X, and they both play the same role. They're both about the same age. They both get the same money. Like, what's the deal? <laughs> uh, all right, let's get to the offensive stats here. Shocker, uh, Tennessee was very high in outside zone uh, at 37%. That was fourth overall in the league. When you have King Henry, yeah, you're, you're going to be running a lot of outside zone. That is what he is best at. That is what he is better than almost anybody in NFL history at, is outside zone. It's such a rare thing to see a running back like Derrick Henry. Yes. Where <laughs> you know what they're going to run. Mm -hmm. You go into every single game knowing that we're going to see that man on outside zone 15-plus times yep. this Sunday. And you still can't really stop it. Like, unless the offensive line is absolutely beat to shit, which they were last year, but, like, when the offensive line was reasonably healthy and you had Henry at the peak of his powers, you knew exactly what the game plan was, and they still would beat people to death. It's very, very seldom that I think we get to see an offense like that where they are so physically dominant and where the running back is so physically dominant that they don't really have to out-scheme you. And I truly hope that we get to see a few more years of healthy Derrick Henry. Obviously, things have started to catch up to him a little bit at his age. But if we get a few more, not even fully prime, but just like 80% years of Derrick Henry, he's going to be one of the top 15 rushers in the history of the sport, probably a Hall of Famer, definitely already in the in the Titans, like Ring of Honor. Um, but I... I want to see him get there because I feel like he's one of the last modern running backs that will get the workload to get there. I would completely agree. And there, throughout his career, there have not been very many ways to stop 
Derrick Henry. Lots of teams have tried. And the only way to get it done, I felt like, early in his career was on outside zone to string him out the extra gap because his turn wasn't super quick. And the way you basically run outside zone is you have from here to here, you let the running back get outside, he finds his gap, he turns and gets upfield outside the tackle box. That's an oversimplification, but that's outside zone in a nutshell. Yeah, you're, you're reading it gap to gap from the outside in, you find your crease, you pick it, you go. Right. Yeah. And the one thing was if you forced, the farther you forced Henry to the edge, his turn was a little bit slow. And I mean, a little bit slow. We're talking about chinks in the armor. We're talking about the only possible way you could stop him because he was too big. He was too fast. He's just really, really good. But the only way teams would limit him is if they could string him out the extra gap towards the outside and catch him while he was turning because he took a little bit longer to do that. And it was a little bit easier in that moment to get him down because, look, once he takes that first step with a head of steam towards his gap, good luck. He's Derrick Henry. Mm-hmm. And then about three years ago, he quickened up that step. Like, I don't know whether it was offseason. I don't know if there was him doing self-scouting. I don't know if it was coaching, coaching staff. Coach Titans just started doing yoga. It, something <laughs> happened. And all of a sudden, it didn't take an extra beat if you strung him out. And then it was like, well, good luck now, guys. Mm-hmm. Now there's no way to stop him. Like, there's literally nothing you can do. And I feel like when that happened, that was about when – People were, we do this with running backs. They get towards the high 20s and people go, when's it going to happen? Especially guys like Derrick Henry with a ton of carries, a lot of tread off the tires. When's it going to happen? Is it now? Is it this? Is this two-game dip of, you know, a sign of things to come? And he made that small improvement three, three and a half years ago and just carried on. Like, mm-hmm. he continued to get older, but he just continued to have insanely high production numbers. And you were like, wow, this guy, I'm with you, is at the height of his powers. He is a truly, I'm going to say he's unique. I I don't think there's another size-speed combination. There have been a lot of NFL running backs, but when you look at how big he is and how fast he is still in the open field, I just don't think there's anybody else really like that. There's other people with like production and everything else. I think like when he's really striding out, uh, it reminds me a lot of like Eric Dickerson, which is a common comparison Mm -hmm. that he's had, but also with like Brandon Jacobs size. So I, I really don't know if that's ever existed. No, I, I, I use the term unique and you know this about me uh, very sparingly. Because it's a superlative. Unique means the only one. Mm-hmm. Derrick Henry, I think, might be somebody I'd apply the unique label to. And I just want to see more of that because, look, I'm a football fan. I'm, you know, I'm greedy. We got to see him live in Seattle a couple of years ago when they were in Seattle and, you know, watching him break off those runs in the fourth quarter when the Titans were left for dead. Mm-hmm. Like they were getting shellacked in that game. And they didn't come back with the pass. They came back by handing the ball to Derek uh, and just and just grinding them down. It was a very <laughs> Derek Henry game. Yeah. Like nothing, nothing, nothing. First half, no on the road, nothing. Oh man, I just don't think they have the horses. I don't think they have a horsepower to overcome this deficit. And they never wavered. So it was a very Titans, very Vrabel, very Derek Henry game. And they just literally kept grinding. And then it started to break because Titans fans are super familiar with this. <laughs> You've watched this for many years, pound and pound and pound him fourth quarter. 
they just can't hold up. They couldn't hold up. He started gashing them. They came back. They end up winning an overtime in the road game that, you know, not a lot of people gave him a chance in. And we just kind of looked at each other and went, that's it. Like, that's the <laughs> that's the Titans in a nutshell. And that's how they win games. And that's how they're so consistent. The faces of those Seahawks fans leaving the stadium, it was like, what oh my, oh my God, they, they did it to us. Like we knew they were going to do it to us and they did it to us and we couldn't stop it. What the hell? Which is <laughs> what Titans fans or Titans opponents, uh, you know, fans have said for a long time is we knew it was like, like you said, we knew it was coming this week. We knew what our job was. We came out with the best plan we had and it didn't measure up. Looking at uh, the pass game specifically, because again, we talk about the run game a lot, but the pass game still does exist in Nashville. Because we have to. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. Uh, again, a lot of these numbers I I do think will change significantly because of the changes made to the offensive line. Um, they were tenth in play action percentage last year because they were doing whatever they could to just try to slow down pass rushes. Didn't work out too hot for them, but again, I respect them for trying. Um, average time to throw 2.85 seconds, um, 12th slowest. I have to imagine that was influenced a little bit by Malik's ability to run around. And, um, you know, also the fact that again, they were very play action heavy. Uh, I, I, I did have some complaints about Malik's game, but I don't attribute the quote unquote being slow to throw. I don't attribute that entirely to him not being able to read the defense on time. It literally was both the fact that he can run and also that the system wasn't really focusing on the quick passing game anyway. Um, which, again, he still has a lot to work on. But anyway, neither here nor there. Air yards percentage, in terms of the percentage of yards that came through the air rather than after the catch, they were 21st in that. Only 50% of their yards came through the air. So, again, roughly 50% came after the catch. They were 21st in average depth of target. They were 26th in big-time throw percentage. And they were 12th. This is what was actually really interesting to me. They were 12th in yards per attempt still. But that's specifically because their weapons were good after the catch and able to rip off chunks, breaking tackles in space. That was pretty much their only consistent way of getting chunk plays was after the catch. Um, so kind of a weird offense overall because it was play action heavy. They didn't throw deep super uh, super often, even though they tried to off play action. So they were forced to dump it down. And then you had guys like Chickaconquo who could just make shit happen after the catch. It was uh, it was odd. Didn't work, but I understood what they were going for. They were they were trying to you know make a five star meal out of dollar store ingredients, and uh, you know I. I, I understand it. I did not think it was a coaching problem last year. It was simply a available talent problem. It lacked cohesion. <laughs> Let's just say that. And the numbers bear that out. The experience on the field bears that out as well. If you watched a lot of Titans game or you watched a lot of Titans tape last year, the run game felt like it was more cohesive and that it followed more of their plan and the past game felt like whatever let's try it uh you know this is what we've got let's try and make it work and for many different reasons injury change in the starting quarterback um lack of available weapons i'm gonna say it they you know their pass catching roster is not awe-inspiring they have some talents that we like it's not particularly deep this is not a team that's going to spread it out and go four or five wide very often. You can tell that from their personnel acquisition. Um, they're going to lean on 
Chig and their tight end to be a primary receiving threat or, you know, one of their two primary receiving threats. And that's really it. It's almost um, Baltimore-esque in that way under Mark, uh, under Greg Roman in that, you know, they're going to have one receiver that they really like that they're going to invest in and say, yep, that's our guy. And then they're going to have a tight end who they also really like, and then they're going to run the hell out of the ball. The, the difference, though, between this Titans team, or at least what we expect from this Titans team under Kim, uh, Tim Kelly this year versus the Greg Roman Ravens is personnel grouping because they don't have more than one tight end that we really believe in, whereas Baltimore had like eight of them. Uh, they they kind of have to stick with their very narrow slice of 11 personnel that we think can work if they all stay healthy with Bur uh, Burks, um, Nick Westbrook-Akine, and then Kyle Phillips in the slot, and then you got Chig as your, as your tight end. If any of those top receivers go down, and you're staring down the barrel of like Racy McMath and Colton Dowell being on the field in 11, then you're you're kind of fucked. Um, <laughs> not not to be like super doom and gloom, but you kind of are. So they need those top three guys to stay healthy. But I think that their their tight end situation is even more dire because they really can't afford Chig to go down, or else you're looking at Trayvon Wesco being your starting tight end. So um, again, the the top 11 on offense. I think is fine, but nobody can get hurt. Like that is, that is the moral of the story here. They do not have the depth to sustain injuries, just like they didn't have the depth last year. And it's the same story that we said last year and really the year before for the Cardinals out in Arizona. Hey, top talent looks nice. We like the top talent. Top talent can play with almost anybody. As soon as there are injuries at certain spots, it doesn't look good anymore. And I would even like, I'm a big Nick Westbrook Akina guy. I think he's actually a little bit underrated. I also don't want him as my number two. Very good number three. Yeah. You know, the Tyler Boyd territory, right? Yeah. I, I don't want him as my number three. And, you know, some people might think that we're like trolling off the bottom of the depth chart or third or fourth, you know, tier team wide receivers. No, that that's their second team that's yeah racing mcmath is wide receiver four right now yeah, like, he's a backup <laughs> that's what he so, is you know it gets bleak pretty quickly in that area again the titans haven't for the most part hung their hat on that piece of offense so their personnel acquisition reflects that they're they're not going to buff out a wide receiver room and have you know eight guys they really love because they're only throwing to two of them you know, occasionally three of them, they don't need five and eight guys deep. And that's reflected um, in the way that they want to run this offense. But they also can't afford it if those guys go down as a result. Well, why don't we talk about, uh, you know, the man that has been tasked with improving the depth, not just in the receiving core, but really everywhere on the team. Uh, you know, this is Rand Carthon's first year in Tennessee. Thought he did an admirable job with the situation that was handed over to him um i'm still not entirely sure what was going on with uh with robinson when he got let go from what i understand there was some sort of divide between him and vrabel about something i don't know what yep um and when push came to shove vrabel won yep <laughs> would love to hear a a story about that at some point just to just to see what happened. Because I thought Robinson, overall, I, I thought he was a 
a plus on the organization, not a minus, right? There was there was obviously some stuff that he missed. Um, you know, I felt like he kind of botched, uh, you know, maintaining the offensive line and investing in the offensive line. But there were a lot of picks that that Robinson made that I thought were genuinely awesome. So I don't think that he was like a drain on the organization. That being said, water under the bridge. Rand Carthon's here. He also, I thought, for a, a first year general manager job where he was tasked to come in and fix a disaster of an offensive line in one year and try to improve depth in the receiving core and, you know, try to inject even more talent onto the defense, you know, handle a bunch of contracts that were bloated and not sustainable. You know, you have a quarterback situation that is still not settled. Like there was a lot on his plate to manage and I thought he did a pretty fine job. Yeah, he certainly didn't have any shortage of tasks when he arrived in Tennessee. Now, the timing with Robinson was very strange. To see a GM let go midseason is almost never exceedingly happens. rare. Yeah. So there was definitely something going on. It does feel like for whatever reason, he and Vrabel reached a crossroads. They couldn't get past. Vrabel got the vote of confidence from the organization. Robinson moves on. Rand Carthon's a name we've heard, you know, bandied about for a couple of years now as, look, this guy's going to be a GM. Like, he's got a really good personnel, sterling personnel record in his stops. He's going to be considered. And when the time's right and he likes the organization, he's going to be a GM. That comes to pass. I feel like the handshake between he and Vrabel is probably going to be pretty tight because if Vrabel's the guy that's standing on top of the mountain, he definitely had some input into who the next GM was going to be. Feels like he and you know Rand Carthon probably agreed on a fundamental level of how this team should be built. But yeah, no shortage of things for Carthon to do when he showed up because not a perfect team and certainly not the young and ascending. It feels like a little bit of tear down and rebuild while trying to maintain. It's not a to the studs, you know, fire sale type deal, but there were elements of that. There were some rooms that needed to be gutted um, and he got right to it. Vrabel's in year five. We've sung his praises multiple times. We both think he's one of the top and steadiest coaches in the NFL. Um, he runs a very level ship, and mm -hmm. we've seen some huge swings with injury, with a GM moving on midseason. Like, there have been things around the Titans seasons for the past two or three years while he's been there. Same result. Like, he is a steady hand, and we really appreciate that about him. Uh, another team that has an assistant head coach designation, uh, also in charge of the defense and the defensive line, Terrell Williams, uh, fifth year as the Tennessee defensive line coach, gets that assistant head coach title as well. Offensive coordinator you mentioned earlier, Tim Kelly. Uh, it's for his first year, but he was the pass game coordinator last year. Poor guy. Again, throwing shit at the wall and didn't, didn't saw what stuck. Didn't have a lot of horses to run that offense. So I think we'll get a cleaner representation of what we would like, what he would like to run this year with a healthy slate. I hope so. Uh, defensive coordinator Shane Bowen, year two, after three seasons of being the outside linebacker coach. So again, promotion from within, understands the system, understands the personnel build not a huge changeover on what we've seen from defense. And again, is able to coordinate the best run defense uh, by EPA in the NFL. Needs to bring the secondary up, but again, a lot of young players feel like that's going to improve as well. And even if they just get to mid-pack uh, on defensive EPA ratings, this defense is going to be very good again this year. And then Craig Ackerman is in year five as a special teams coach there. Looking at uh, the assistant coaches under them, 
I did not realize that Lori Locus was in Tennessee now. Yeah. You know, she was uh, she was working in Tampa for a long time. Yep. Uh, with their defensive line, and you know, obviously Tampa's defensive line was ass kickers incorporated uh, while she was there. So really curious to see if an already very productive front four in Tennessee can get even better with with her in the fold. That's a good pickup for them. Yeah, in the in the Buccaneers episode uh, that we recorded last week, we talked about a talent drain after Arians left, and I felt like Coach Lowe was one of those. Uh, she very quickly found a home in Tennessee, and they gave her the defensive quality control title of like, hey, come work on our staff. We'll, we'll find a role for you. Uh, she's had very good success at all of her stops. Um, also on defense, Chris Harris is the defensive pass game coordinator and cornerbacks coach. Nine years already coaching in the NFL. That makes me feel old. Spent the last three as a DB coach for Washington. And, of course, he was a safety in the NFL himself for eight seasons. On offense, Rob Moore, Jets fans will recognize this name, as the wide receivers coach. Fifth season as the Titans wide receiver coach. 14 seasons coaching in the NFL. He was a 12-year career NFL wide receiver himself. After being selected in the supplemental draft, I love this. You just had to get a Syracuse player in here, didn't yeah, well, you? Well, <laughs> it's the Syracuse, but it's even more the supplemental draft. Supplemental draft, for those of you that don't know, is coming back this year after a yeah. two-year hiatus. Um, it is players that are granted eligibility to be drafted that, for one reason or another, maybe couldn't go back to school or they had a medical concern that kept them out of the, the main draft. Basically, a team has to spend next year's draft pick of a commensurate round, and it's, it's basically like a blind auction. Everybody submits the highest pick if they're interested in the player that they would give for that, and then whoever submits the highest pick by order wins the player, gives up that pick in next year's draft this year there's uh two it's, wide it's, receivers yeah two eligibles um now keep in mind we're recording this a couple days after fourth of july so the draft hasn't happened yet yeah it might happen before this goes live it might but so we might have to do some sort of yeah, if so, somebody if, if somebody that we haven't or some team that we haven't released yet makes that big we'll have to do some sort of supplemental recording thing but sure um yeah just keep an eye out for the supplemental draft it's yeah awesome. rob moore great career as a just wide receiver always cool when guys that go in the supplemental draft because there's not very many of them overall historically go on to very productive nfl careers mm -hmm. obviously spending more than a decade in the league is is a very good nfl career and then charles london is the pass game coordinator and quarterbacks coach Spent the last two seasons in Atlanta as the quarterback's coach there, so he's seen some turnover and now gets to work with uh, the trio of Titans quarterbacks that we're going to talk about as we go down. Well, speaking of uh, the quarterback one there, you know, not not focusing yet on, on Malik or Levis, but focusing more on Ryan Tannehill as well as the weapons that Ryan Tannehill has to throw to, which we've already talked about extensively. I, I find the valuations in Tennessee to be mostly pretty fair. You know, from a, a fantasy perspective, like let's say we're doing best ball drafts or, you know, you're in your home league or you're doing dynasty, although a lot of dynasty drafts usually happen right after the NFL draft. But some people wait until July to do dynasty to to kind of, you know, let the water settle a little bit more. So do research. Like yeah. A lot of people haven't done their research by May, so they need the summer to research and then they'll get together with the, you know, their friends and do their dynasty drafts around this time of year. Um, and I do feel like a lot of the valuations are pretty fair for for titans players you know for a team that doesn't get paid attention to uh fantasy players sure do you know derrick henry's going as rb8 right now which again totally see the argument for it you know not a pass catching extraordinaire um 
and also, you know, had a lot of tread on the tires, starting to deal with some injury stuff. Could very easily outperform RB8, but I understand the argument for it. Uh, Traylon Burks, who has a lot of talent, mm-hmm. but hasn't yet proven that. Yep. Or rather, proven that it, proven that that talent will translate is going as wide receiver 36. He's the highest drafted receiver in Tennessee, which is, again, totally fair. And then you got Chigakonkwo, who outproduced Burks last year, and he was a favorite of the show. Um, I I think we had him on our 10 Gems episode, right? I don't know if we had him on 10 Gems, but we did interview him at the Shrine Bowl. One of our favorite interviews, one of the first in-depth interviews we did at the Shrine Bowl and fell in love with that guy almost immediately as a player. Really liked his tape, but when we got the chance to sit with him and and dig in and understand his journey at Maryland and and how he'd progressed as a player and where he was, we both felt like he was going to be we really thought an under the radar value. And then he went to the combine and blew that up and that sort of soared his stock. And then everybody knew, or most everybody knew, but um, we felt like we were sitting on that one a little bit early. And then we're like, Oh, okay. Now everybody (laughs) sees it because very fast player, very pass catcher, but also a a guy that had dedicated himself to understand blocking. Um, You can go back and watch that interview on this channel said that he did not like it at first. It was not his cup of tea, but um, his coaches sort of kept on him and then he came to like it. And he's very effective uh, in that role as well. Turns out that he's also really, really fast. Um, He's like low four five. Yeah. And, you know, blasted onto the scene in Tennessee last year and was their leading receiver, basically. Yeah, he's he is the new Delaney Walker, except even Delaney wasn't. Uh, wasn't he didn't excel as much as like a Y tight end. He was more of a move tight end that was also a good blocker, but as a move tight end, whereas Chig, you can put him at Y and he's fine, or you can put him on the move and he's a great blocker on the move too. So I think he, he could potentially be as sacrilegious as this sounds an even better version of Delaney. Mm. And he, he was somebody who I compared to Delaney when he was coming out. Huge fan of Chig. He's going as tight end 11 right now, which again, Super fair, like considering the production and the potential that we saw from him uh, as a rookie, like that's like if there was anybody that I was honestly really investing in in this offense, it would be him just because we we saw it work already and we know that it can work. Um, Kyle Phillips, if we're value hunting, like just pure value hunting, um, I know that Nick Westbrook-Akine at like wide receiver 47 is one that a lot of people zero in on. But Kyle Phillips, to me, is a better receiving threat than Westbrook Akine. And he also happens to be going super late at wide receiver 114. Oof. So his ADP is 215.8. Again, you're, you're looking at like a, a last round pick type guy here. Before his injuries last year, and especially in training camp, all we heard was, oh, my God, Kyle Phillips is the best receiver on this team. He was getting open more than anybody. He was catching everything. He's tough. And, and again, another guy that we saw at Shrine Bowl Week up close and personal interviewed him. He's a San Marcos kid from Southern California. Uh, my wife's family's all San Marcos, so we chatted about that. Shout out to San Marcos. You know, went to UCLA, was uncoverable at UCLA, went to Tennessee, was uncoverable in camp, you know, was productive early in Tennessee before he got hurt last year. And really the only reason why he got drafted as late as he did was because of injury. And unfortunately that reared its ugly head. But if he stays healthy, 
he's going to lead this team in catches. And he might even lead them in overall yards. Like, he is legitimately the hardest-to-cover receiver on the team. He just happens to be a slot receiver that gets hurt a lot. So if I'm value hunting, yeah, I'm throwing a pick at Kyle Phillips in the last round because if he stays on the field, he's going to produce better than probably 60 to 70 of the receivers that go ahead of him. Easily, and this feels like it falls under the same umbrella shadow of recency bias in the fact that he did get hurt early in the year, but people forget his first game ever in the NFL. He had nine targets leading the team, caught six of those for 66 yards in his first ever game as an NFL wide receiver. So all the things we said at Shrine, all the things we said about his tape at UCLA, that he was basically uncoverable, that he just knew how to get open, great technician as a route runner, uh, I would say surprisingly quick out of his breaks, all that combined to just be incredibly productive and was, like has already proved it, yes, got injured. If he stays healthy, I do believe he'll have the most catches on this team. Not sure about the most yards. He might get eclipsed for the most yards, but he's definitely going to be somebody that is incredibly quarterback friendly and as you know a fantasy football player looking for somebody that's going to produce week in week out if he's on the field that's the place to go value hunting you're talking about a very late round pick for if a guy that he's on the field could lead his team in receptions that's value yeah i i think your point about you know maybe not leading in yards is fair just because he is going to be somebody who's working more short to intermediate whereas Burks could get he's going to get his 70 chunks. yards yeah. in one touch right because he's big and fast and he's trailing Burks he's trailing Burks and and Chig also you know again you can throw him something in the flat and he can break that and take it for 30 so you know I I do think it's fair in PPR to really prioritize Kyle Phillips and if you're a dinosaur and still playing in standard you can go draft Traylon um but in half PPR like it's a lot closer than people think because I do think there's a lot of value in the receptions that, that Phillip's gonna rack up do you remember what Chig said his favorite route was when we asked him at the end of his interview I don't actually remember that what did he say I'm pretty sure he said bang eight <laughs> of course well he runs four or five like why wouldn't it be <laughs> you know we were both like yeah checks out yeah, makes sense yeah he could man he can run He's yep. so good. He's so talented. And he said it like that, too. It's like, okay, we gave him the scenario, end of the game, you're 40 yards out, you got to score. Like, what's the one route you want to run? What's the one coach? What's the one thing you want your coach to call? He's like, bang eight. <laughs> it's just like, bam. Okay. And we're like, all right. Yep. Uh, where are you at on uh, on Teje Spears, by the way? Because I know that we both loved him as a prospect, and then we heard about the knee, and we're like, ooh, I don't know now. Um, if – if he's on the field this year, yeah, do you feel like he is going to siphon away enough work from Henry because his skill set is different? Uh, you know, especially as like a third down back, receiving back. Do you feel like he's going to siphon away enough work that that you would be interested at all in investing? This is really trying to read the tea leaves about his usage, and it it has so many factors to play into it. Is this going to be the year? I know we say this every year. Sorry. Is this going to be the year that Derrick Henry slows down a little bit? We've been saying it for four years. He hasn't really slowed down. So who knows? Maybe. If it's not, I don't see him getting a lot of carries. If that starts to occur, 
And strangely enough, I don't think it's receiving. A lot of people are going to say receiving. I think it would be straight sort of inline carries as a rushing threat. And he is a very good runner. The team would have to adjust a little bit. He is not the same style as a runner as Derrick Henry is. Um, but it is all about whether or not he's going to get any carries. And I feel like with Vrabel and this organization in general, I just don't see Derrick Henry as a player you put on a pitch count. Like either he's healthy and he's in there and he's producing or he's hurt. And then it's Ty J Spears time. There's not a lot like, Oh, Derek, we want to arrest you. Like Derek doesn't seem to strike me as a player. That's going to be like, Oh, cool. Like he's going to be like, what do you mean? You're <laughs> taking you. my Give touches. Me the ball. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it really does come down to whether or not he starts to slow down or gets injured. If he does great. But at that point you're already past the point. It is a true sort of, Lottery pick, dart throw, wild card choice of like, hey, I just don't think that Jerry Kenner is going to be healthy all year. And if that's the case, like I'm all about Ty J Spears because I love the talent. Um, the knee didn't seem to slow him down at all in his final college season. Um, I like him a lot, but it's just, like I said, trying to look at the crystal ball and say, is he going to get on the field? If he gets on the field, I feel like he'll be productive, but it's a big if. Looking at the, the season-long pick, I'm just taking a, a slight detour here um, because I, I do like to look at the season-long pick on Underdog and just like see what the projections are. And you can either select higher or lower yep. um, and you can build like entire slips out of it, you know, throw down 20 bucks and, and, you know, see if you can make some money off that. And for a lot of these that we've been looking at throughout this series, we're like, oh, my God, that's way undervalued. Like Anthony Richardson, like 2,700 yards passing. We're like, that's egregious. Derrick Henry's is really hard because it's at 1225 rushing for the season, which is like the exact number that I would expect from him. Yeah. You'd be Our, guessing on about 25 yards. It's <laughs> such a narrow slice. Like, I, I, I don't know if I would. It, I would just stay away from it. Because uh, yeah. in I my heart of hearts, <laughs> what we just said at the opening of this show was we really want to see Derrick Henry stay and have some good, productive years. And even if it was at 80% and 1225 would actually be less than 80% of his peak years. Like, but like, I don't want to jinx it. I want to see like 13, 1400 yards out of Henry this year. I feel like that would be a very successful season. And I feel like if I bet the under it feels dirty if i bet the over it's you know jinxing, it. jinxing it like <laughs> i just i just want to stay away from that one uh trail on burks is at 825 receiving that one i'll probably go higher just because again he's somebody where you can give him a screen and he'll take it 70 that's going to happen a few times this year by itself let alone the, all the other cheap he's stuff he's the clear number one like he's yeah. the clear number one on that offense he might not be number one in catches we just talked about that but he is the clear First read, if he's open, throw it. Big play you know, threat. If yeah. he's even, throw it because he's going to make 50-50 balls into you know 60-40 balls in his favor or better. Um, he's going to get the chances, and when he does, the chunks are going to come. Now, if it was a touchdown number for Burks, I think I'd stay away from it, but a yardage number in the 800s? Well, his touchdown number is four and a half receiving touchdowns for the year. So if you think he's going to score five plus times, I know. Which I, I, it's mm. just so odd because when they get in the red zone, they don't typically throw fades to the alpha. Like that's not their thing. But he's so he's so explosive. I, it's it, like I I, I could see them doing like 
um, you know, like the tap pass sweeps and that technically you're receiving touchdown. Counts. Uh, <laughs> for these purposes, I, I think the greater catnip for me is the yard number. It feels low, not because the Titans are going to be super prolific, but like, look, if Tannehill stays healthy, he's, he's going over that number. Like, Burks yeah. is going over that number. Yeah. So uh, if, if you feel as confident about that as EJ and I do, or, or maybe if you feel as confident that it's not going to happen. That we're idiots. If you think I'm a moron, which I know is a lot of you out there, uh, feel free to use promo code bootleg over underdog fantasy. They will match whatever your first deposit is up to $100. So if you put in 10, they'll give you an extra 10. If you put in 100, they'll give you an extra 100 that you can use on literally anything on the platform, whether it's, again, those season-long pick'ems, or if you want to do in-season pick'ems where you're picking um, you know, hires or lowers on individual players and individual games, and you're building all the slips, and there's like, you know, 20x payouts, um, you know, all that stuff. Or if you're doing best ball drafts, or if you're doing, you know, just leagues with your buddies, anything like that, whatever you want to do on Underdog, uh, they'll give you all that extra money to use on that. So, uh, again, that is promo code bootleg on Underdog Fantasy. They'll match your deposit up to that hundred. We thank Underdog for sponsoring this show and all of our shows this series and with that ej let's get to free agency we talked about all the work that Rand carthon had to do upon arriving in tennessee and this is one of the biggest lists we're going to see throughout the entire series a lot of names here a lot of snaps impact eh, <laughs> maybe not as much impact but a lot of change i'm going to start with ben jones the center played 66 percent of their snaps he'd been a stalwart for them still unsigned um Jeff Swaim, tight end moves on. Taylor Luan, left tackle. That was expected. Again, he'd only played 6% of the snaps last year. Zach Cunningham was a sort of, I want to say it was a high profile or a high potential addition at the time. It was a bit of a lottery ticket. Didn't work out. They let him go. Demarcus Walker from the Titans to the Bears. Good pickup for the Bears. Is a guy I think they're going to miss, even though he only played 33% of the snaps as a rotational guy for them. He was very effective in those snaps as a sort of under-the-radar contributor. Nate Davis also goes to the Bears. This is another great pickup for the Bears. He played 66% of the Titans' snaps. So, again, they have a plan for how they're going to replace those snaps on the offensive line, but we're counting it as a loss. Um, Dennis Daly, the right guard. 90% of the snaps. So that's addition by subtraction, if we're being perfectly honest. <laughs> in terms of what we saw on the field, yeah, they're not. Again, these are names. They've moved on. When we get to the impact category, it's like, uh, might he, actually he be a positive impact. He would not have played 90% of the snaps if they had literally any other option. Fully agree. <laughs> Next name is in a different category. David Long. 63% uh, of their snaps. When you're talking about cover two, my mind automatically goes to who's the middle linebacker. Like, such a dependent scheme on one position. And David Long was the guy running the middle for them last year. Again, we have questions about why they let him go, because he was effective. I, I really do think it just comes down to, because Rand Carthon came from San Francisco, he was familiar with Al-Shair. If I have a theory, it's it's that. It's that Rand knew Al-Shair, uh, and, and that was it. Nothing against David Long. I just I right. think it was familiarity. Yeah, we both like him as a player. Uh, Bud Dupree, uh, longtime edge fixture. Well, edge fixture for the Titans after coming over from the Steelers. He moves on to the Falcons. Again, 40% as a rotational edge for them. They're going to have to replace that those snaps. Austin Hooper uh, ends up signing with the Raiders. He played about half of their snaps. 
Mario Edwards Jr., again, rotational guy, uh, you know, about a third of the snaps, just over. Again, name moves on. Not a massive loss necessarily. And then Robert Woods, Bobby Trees, player we love. Uh, never really worked out in the Titans, for the Titans, the way we thought he would. Um, actually like his fit with the Texans a little bit better where he landed. Um, played a ton of snaps for them. He was their number two. 78% of the snaps as a wide receiver is a lot. Ends up getting $7 million to move on to the Texans. I feel like he's in for a resurgence. I feel like he's fully healed from injury, and he's in a spot where he's going to make a little bit more impact. Again, they lost him. I don't necessarily feel like they really replaced him. They sort of slid Nick Westbrook-Kakini into his spot, um, which is fine. He has familiarity with the system and everything else. And in terms of like straight production, it's probably in Nick's favor. Um, again, Bobby Trees didn't have the production we hoped he would in Tennessee. But overall, that's a, that's a laundry list. That's a list as long as your arm. And we didn't even name everybody. Those are just the, the players that we felt like had a lot of impact or played a lot of snaps. It's almost reminiscent of if there had been coach turnover and they changed yeah. schemes. Like that's the kind of list you would see, but they didn't. So it's notable in that regard. In terms of who they brought back, uh, you know, obviously some of those names they would have liked to keep. But when you have to pay Jeffrey Simmons $23.5 million a year, hard decisions decisions need to be made. Um you know, they, they definitely did not want a repeat of the A.J. Brown situation where, uh, you know, where they where they let A.J. walk out the door and, and get paid elsewhere. And all of a sudden, you know, he's producing even more than his lofty contract would suggest. A.J. had like a top five receiving year uh, this year. They, they didn't want to repeat that with Jeffrey Simmons. They they knew he was worth it. They were going to shell out the cash for him. They did not want him, you know, making a run to a Super Bowl with another franchise. So, uh, good move for them. Keep your elite talent in house, please. Got to do <laughs> Going it. Going forward, please keep your elite talent in house. Uh, Aaron Brewer. They also uh, brought back um, Nick Westbrook-Akine. Only one point two six million dollars. So compared to be to wide the, receiver two. I I get it. I get it. It's a cheap receiving core. In fact, it's probably the cheapest in the league because it's rookies and Westbrook-Akine. Yeah, Middle-round rookies and Nick Westbrook-Akine making $1.2 million. I would bet that... It's going to be hard to get lower than that. AJ's probably making more than their entire receiving core combined. Easily. Like, uh, even into, like, the ninth, tenth guy... It, you oh, might be like, I, you're, you're talking about the full night. Like the guys. entire. He's, I was going to say he's easily making more than the starting three. Yeah, it might. Yeah, and throw the tight ends in there too. He's <laughs> probably making more than all of them. Um, so yeah, again, they're they're trying to they're trying to money ball this receiving core. And you know, if you're getting Westbrook Keene for 1.2 compared to you know the 7.6 that Bobby Tree's mm -hmm. got, I I Makes get sense. it. I get it. Uh, and then Tier Tart, who you talked about earlier, got four million, which in this current interior defensive line market, where again you got guys near the top like Simmons making close to twenty four, divide that by six, and you're getting another starter in Tart. That's a good deal for them, especially in this system. I feel like some people might look at it, uh, especially if they're not familiar with the tape, and look at Tier Tart and go four million. That seems kind of rich for a guy that's really a pure nose tackle. Like, what are we doing here? Uh, look what happens if you take him out of the lineup. That's what we're doing here. We're we're assuring that we don't have to see that for only four million dollars. Solid signing. 
in terms of third-party editions, uh, not many like major, major money contracts like what we saw with with Simmons. You know, the most they spent uh, was a little under ten million for Andre Dillard to be their starting left tackle. Uh, While well, you got the rookie manning the right side, uh, Arden Key they spent seven million on, which again in the current edge market, perfectly fair value. Sean Murphy Bunting, you know somebody who I, I I don't know if we brought it up in the Bucks episode last week, but he was like a very good nickel uh, in Tampa, and also somebody who could play outside as well. But um, I think he's gonna he's gonna get a lot of snaps in Tennessee, and for three and a half million, I was all about it. I thought that was a great pickup for them. Uh, Daniel Brunskill also brought in from the 49ers. Carthon has familiarity with him. Uh, solid interior starting offensive lineman. Not not going to blow you away, but solid. Um, and then Alshair, who just because of who was in front of him in San Francisco, uh, where you got Greenlawn and you got Fred, like there's just not there's not snaps to go around there, but your upward mobility is limited, (laughs) but he would start on most teams in the league and, and Rand knew that and brought him in at 5 million. Um, so again, not like huge money deals, but very good values here for, for their third party additions. I really feel like Sean Murphy bunting is a, is a sort of key pickup that again, got very little or no press, his addition puts other people in the right places. He is going to play outside for them. He is going to start for them. I think he fits their system and it makes it so it's kind of, it feels to me like when a, a one member of an offensive line team goes down and that unit all has to try and fill in or cover up extra gaps. It feels the same in the secondary, right? We've said this for multiple teams throughout this series. They had the one corner. They didn't have the other corner. And so it solidifies that other corner spot for them with a what I think is what we think is a very solid player. Let's McCleary, McCurry focus on the slot. Fulton's on the other side, gives them stability and doesn't force them to take players and move them around and put them in roles. It sort of resets them and puts them all right in the correct spaces in the secondary. I feel like. For what that is, if you could do that for $3.5 million and be pretty sure you're going to get solid play out of SMB, which I think they will, that's a really good underrated move. I thought that was, you know, if you're putting feathers in Rand Carthen's cap early, like I think that's one Tennessee fans about midseason are going to look back on and go, that was, that was good. Yeah, I mean, $3.5 million is like kicker money, and you're getting a, a starting corner out of it. So that's that's a really, really good deal. I want to know, like, how how he didn't get more anywhere like i i i thought okay like five or six something like that but yeah sometimes when you wait in the process though that money's just not I, there i guess you know guess. it's it's a game of it's a very selective game of musical chairs in terms of who has money and who has spots right some teams are trying to shed payroll um some teams have a lot of money but their defensive secondary is already set and it all of a sudden comes down to like well there's two teams left you could sign with pick one and Maybe it's not for the money you thought you're worth. Moving on uh, from free agency to the draft, not the biggest class. They only had six picks total. Um, So they really had to make them count the number one priority going into the draft. And we said it many, many, many times. Oh, my God, please get a tackle. Like that was that was all we wanted was like, don't take the bait on on Will Levis at 11th overall because if you put Will Levis behind that offensive line without taking a tackle 
not not going to go well, right? And so we were begging them to pull the trigger on a tackle, and they did do that at the top, and still got Will Levis in the second round anyway. We're patient and rewarded, I think, in terms of the Levis sweepstakes. Round one, pick 11, want to talk about Peter Skaronsky out of Northwestern, my top offensive lineman in this draft. A lot of people had tackle guard questions. I felt like he could play tackle given the chance. We're going to get to see that. He's the only rookie starter penciled in for the Titans on the offensive side of the ball. I think he will play and play well early. Um, I think this is a really solid pick. It's not particularly sexy. It was incredibly needed. They, quote unquote, did the right thing here. We'll see if it plays out. No draft pick is a sure thing. But in terms of feeling really solid about a prospect's chances, Skaronsky is a super talented lineman that should fit in right away. They wait, round two, pick 33. They get their patience rewarded, uh, depending on what you think about Will Levis. It's a value. It's much better than if, I feel much better about it than if they gambled on him in the top half of the first round. That would have felt incredibly rich for me. There's a lot of potential with Will Levis. Physically, he has all the tools. He has the size. He has running ability. He has throwing ability for sure. He has a lot of stuff to work on, if that sounds familiar for Titans quarterbacks backing up Ryan Tannehill. It is, but the potential and the fact that you only have to risk a 33rd overall pick to get a potential long-term starting quarterback in the NFL feels like appropriate value, and it's a better spot for Levis. We said this pre-draft, please, please, please don't let him go in the top 10. It won't be good for him, and it won't be good for the team that picks him. That is an unrealistic expectation. The fact that he gets in behind an established starter and does not have to start right away and doesn't have that sort of first-round quarterback value hanging over his head mm -hmm. is all good news for Will Levis. If he has a chance to succeed, this is as good as anywhere. We were talking to to people that know him uh, before the draft, and you know the, the common consensus was great dude, unbelievable talent. He needs to fall for his own good. He needs to go to a better situation than what was going to be available to him in the top 15 picks um, for his own career. Like, for the sake of him going out there and making $250 million and have generational wealth and all that kind of stuff, it's okay to go in the second round yeah. if you have better odds of, of that happening. And he's going to a great organization in Tennessee that because they didn't take him at 11 and they took a great tackle prospect in front of him, like that's going to be better for Levis when he gets on the field. He's going to have a better chance to succeed. He's going to have a better shot at getting eventually a $40, $50 million a year contract than he did if he got drafted 20 slots higher for an extra like 15 million or whatever it was. So like financially, obviously like, ah, it sucks to slide and lose out on money in a rookie contract. But for quarterback specifically, like go to the best team and you'll get paid eventually anyway. So this was great for Levis. Um, I, again, I, I know that it felt shitty for him in the moment because you're sitting there in the green room and you're waiting for your name to be called. This was good for his career. This was good for his chances to succeed. And I just I hope that he knows that. I hope that he realizes that because he might have made a hundred million extra dollars by going twenty spots later. And I don't really care whether he does or not. I hope for balance sake, mental balance sake he does, but I don't care if he uses it as a chip, right? If he 
puts oh, this on his shoulder. Yeah. Puts this yeah. on his shoulder as motivation and says, I should have been a first round talent and goes out and proves it. It's still better for his career. So pretty much no matter which way, this was as close to an ideal spot as that particular prospect was going to get. So feel good for him in the long run. Round three, pick 81, running back Ty J Spears out of Tulane. One of the most electric runners in this entire draft. Yes, some knee problems sort of surfaced or bubbled up. We didn't see those on the field. We didn't see the effect of those. You never know long-term, especially at running back. Gets to start behind Derrick Henry in his NFL career and could eventually be the number one feature back when Henry moves on and very effective in that role. Again, I think a good landing spot. Different style, different player. Super fun to watch. One of my favorite players in this entire draft class to study. Round five, they skip round four. They go down to pick 147. They get tight end Josh Wiley out of Cincinnati. I like him as a player. I feel like he can be a good tight end too in time as a receiving threat. Not a great blocker. Thought it was a solid pick, especially way down in round five. Round six, they get OT Jalen Duncan at 186 out of Maryland. I really like this. I didn't think he was going to go that far down. I really thought he was going to be like a third round player, a fourth round player. I think it was a medical thing. If yeah. If I recall correctly. It felt like that to me because by the time we got to like round five, Jalen Duncan was one of the players that I was looking at my list going, wait a minute, Jalen Duncan's still available? This guy got picked and this guy got picked and Jalen Duncan's still there. A developmental prospect at tackle who had very strong flashes, not a complete player yet. Don't mean to say that I think he should be starting or anything else. But if you're going to gamble on somebody, I would say from the end of round three on down, Jalen Duncan was as strong a bet as many other players in this draft. The fact that he lasted around six, pick 186, really good value for the Titans. And then their final pick, round seven, way down at 228, wide receiver Colton Dowell out of Tennessee Martin. Local kid for them, certainly had scouts that you know knew him and, and knew his game. He's currently in their sort of second team of wide receivers um, or second string. Uh, we'll see seventh round wide receivers lottery pick he better be good at special teams if he wants to be on the 53 um, but again you're talking about a seventh round pick starting off with Skaronsky, Levis, Spears a really good top three and that's largely the way drafts get graded some decent depth and you know lottery ticket start throws further on down that made sense for where they're at as a team really solid first draft for Ren Carthen yeah uh, again for six picks that's about as good as you can hope for um and like we said, we thought that he he walked into a tough situation and did the best he could. And this was the best that he could with, with the resources available to him. One other quick note on Levis. I understand the trepidation with him as a prospect. Decision-making at times was a mess. Accuracy at times was a mess. But... Like we said at the top of the show, this team is never going to be bad enough to select a quarterback that is less messy as a prospect, right? They're not going to be bad enough to take Caleb Williams. They're not going to be bad enough to take Drake May. They're not going to be bad enough. Uh, who's the the Washington State kid? Oh, Cam Ward. Yeah. They, they're probably not going to be bad enough to take Cam Ward either, who's getting a lot of like top half of the first round buzz, right? Um, keep in mind, I have I've studied Ward a lot less than I've studied <laughs> Caleb so far. But Come I'm just on, talking no incarnate Word film study. Like I'm just talking about mean? guys that are getting crazy hype, right? Like sure. Cam, Cam Ward's getting crazy hype. They're not going to be in the top like 12 picks. So 
you gotta take who you can realistically take, which means, you know, taking a swing on an uber physical talent that seems like a really good dude, seems coachable, has a lot of warts that, thank God, you don't have to put on the field right now. He is their best case scenario for taking a young quarterback. It is what it is. So, Titans fans, unless you want your team to just monumentally suck so that you can get a shot at a top, top, top prospect, that's all you can do is take Will Levis in the second round. That's your only option. Unless the worst things happen, right? And we don't want the worst things to happen for players or for teams. But if in week one, Tannehill and Derrick Henry both get hurt, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And maybe you got shot, but I still doubt it with Levis. <laughs> That's the thing is, like, their defense is too good. Like, right. they're, they're not. <laughs> Vrabel is going to drag this team to seven, eight, nine wins no matter what. doesn't matter who's starting. He's going to find a way. He and his group of coaches, which are very strong, are going to find a way to get them mid-pack. And that is a point of pride for them, and they're going to do it. So, yeah, if you get a chance and people might be saying, well, they should have spent the 11th pick. They wouldn't, On what? They wouldn't have gotten a lot better. <laughs> like the top three or four quarterbacks in this draft were gone by 11. So they're going to be in that position every year. They took a swing on Malik Willis last year. They took a swing on Will Levis this year. You have to keep taking those swings because eventually Tannehill's going to age out. A lot of people have already started to say that he is at that point where he's declining. And you can see that in his numbers. You better have something on deck. And if you haven't taken swings, you, you can't wait for the perfect spot. Because you're not going to be super bad ever. And there's not going to be the perfect new car, you know, value sitting there on a lot where you can just go plunk down 35 or 40 grand, you know, buying your first car. You got to find something in a barn and go, well, the paint's not great, but the rest of it runs pretty good. Let's see if we can tune this thing up. Yeah, that's why the Steelers took Kenny Pickett. It's like, what, you think they're going to be bad enough to take Anthony Richardson? No, and they weren't. Like they were, they had a really shitty record in the beginning of the year, and everybody's like, "Oh, this is, this is it. It's finally happening. We're gonna see a four-win Tomlin team, and then they <laughs> rip off like five to go nine and eight. And it's like, uh, God, yeah. Like that's why they took Pickett. They know that like that was the highest they were gonna pick was in the middle and that worked out round. for them. And it worked out. Yeah. Um, all right, let's get to notable undrafted free agents. Um, a pretty sizable list, a pretty big UDFA haul overall here. Again, Carthon kind of putting his stamp on, on the roster, at least trying to put his stamp on the roster by bringing in as many dudes as he can and just seeing who, who he can fill this thing out with. Uh, Jacob Copeland uh, is getting, you know, got a lot of buzz when, uh, when it was announced that Tennessee picked him up. I think he has a more than legit shot to make the final 53, considering the state of their receiving core overall. Caleb Murphy is one that I know you and I are rooting heavy for. Ferris State. Uh, I I can promise you that not many people have gotten to watch Ferris State all 22, but we did. Yeah, <laughs> we watched Caleb Murphy. Uh, you know, dominated Triangle Week. Um, not the most physically gifted edge, but you know, it has an unbelievable motor. Um, does have really loose hips. Um, you know, which I think when he did kind of, you know, use handwork to kind of get around the edge, he could use those loose hips to flatten uh, unnaturally quick at times. So if there's one trait that I do think he does have, it's it's good hips. But he's not the biggest guy. He's not the most explosive guy. But he's got good hands. He's got uh, excellent motor. And again, the the one thing he's got 
is his hips. So we'll see if he makes it. I think he's got a decent shot. Uh, and then Tyreek Jones, safety out of Boise State, the other the other safety. Boise State safety. <laughs> yep. Uh, you know, not not a whole lot of other guys that I personally studied on this list, but those three are are three that I looked at, and I think they all have a legit shot to make the roster. Felt like really solid values. Jacob Copeland is a tough guy. Like he transferred into Maryland as their third wide receiver, never shied away from contact. He is a ball winner. I think that attitude alone probably won Vrabel and his scouts over. Um, he is a solidly built wide receiver that is not ever going to get the prima donna label. He will go do the dirty work uh, for receptions and in the run game makes him a perfect fit for Tennessee. Caleb Murphy, I feel like has a lot of things going for him. He's got good size. You know, he's strong. He's pretty quick. I feel like his best case scenario, and I hate going back to all the Steelers comparisons because it feels like all of a sudden we've made these two sister teams somehow, uh, but is Highsmith, right? Oh, yeah. Not not as talented, but right. I see it. He yeah. comes in from a smaller school with some gifts that you can mold, and if you get him in the right program and you get him the right coaching points, like several years from now, two to three, he could develop into a solid rotational contributor. I feel like he has that talent. Saw some flashes from him at Shrine Bowl that were, ooh, if he could do that, you know, eight out of ten times, that would be really cool. He he was the guy where when we walked in there, because we hadn't watched him before before Shrine, and it took us like a, a couple like individual periods where we're like, what is that helmet? Yeah. <laughs> and eventually we found it. Uh, I think it was we Shane walked over and we're like, who is that? Like, what, oh, what school is that? And he's like, Ferris State. And I'm like, where <laughs> the fuck are you finding players from Ferris State? <laughs> what the hell is a Ferris State? <laughs> um, Caleb, great player. I really like him. Has work to do, but I feel like, again, in this situation, in this defense, in this scheme, with these coaches, he's got as good a chance as any. was really happy to see he ended up there, even though he didn't get drafted. And then Tyree Jones... Had some flashes, not as many as Skinner, who was his teammate at Boise State, who unfortunately is going to play due to injury this year. But um, it was one of those things when you went to watch Skinner tape, you're like, was that? No, that's the wrong number. That's Jones. Oh, okay. He makes some plays too. So again, lands in a spot where they've had, you know, traditionally very good safety play. Can watch guys like Kevin Byard, not saying he's Byard, he's not, but Byard too is a smaller school guy out of Middle Tennessee. Um, who's had tremendous success. So a nice landing spot for Tyreek Jones as well. All right, let's get to our last two segments here, report card and then ceiling and floor for wins. Report card, if you're new here, is where we give one of three grades uh, to four categories, front office, coaching staff, offensive talent, and defensive talent. And this is where we kind of uh, you know, assign a grade based on where we think they're at from last year to this year. It can either be up, down, or even. Even, as we always say, is not a negative. It just means even. For front office, um, I would argue up here, uh, even though I I was not anti-John Robinson at all. I would still argue up just because seeing how Carthon navigated the situation that he was given and did so as well as he possibly could 
you know, with free agency, you know, jettisoning contracts that were a net drain on the organization, bringing in value guys from outside the organization, re-signing key talents, you know, not having a bunch of picks to work with, but still getting at least one foundational piece and potentially two if the quarterback works out not overpaying for the quarterback in your first year as a general manager and trying to, you know, put your stamp on things, you know, having the balls to wait and then take Levis in the second round. I would say that uh, all of that culminates in a slight up for me. Where where are you at? I feel like it's more middle of the fairway because, again, I liked the work under Robinson, thought it was good. Look, folks, you can argue with any general manager's decision. You can cherry pick and say, well, he missed here on this piece of free agency and he waited too long in the draft here. Overall, Robinson had more good moves than bad, I think. And this roster shows that for the most part, receiving core aside. Rand Carthon, I think, again, kept the ball in the fairway, right? Did pretty well with the draft picks he had, did pretty well with a good uh, free agency sort of hand he was dealt, didn't let Jeffrey Simmons get out of the building like you said, resisted the temptation to make a big splash in his first draft, uh, which would have been a mistake, drafting Levis in the top half of the first round. So again, sort of middle of the road. And again, neutral's not bad. I feel like it was good and it continues to be good in slightly different ways. Like Carthen did a lot of trimming that Robinson didn't have to or maybe would have had to. I feel like it's more continuation. If I had, if you made me if you said neutral is not an option, you either have to go up or down. I would say slightly up. But to me, it feels like a continuation of solid GM play, for lack of a better term. Well, for coaching, we are in agreement here. We're going to give that one an even. And again, not a negative. It's just acknowledging the coaching was great before and it's still great now. Uh, so again, that one's going to be even. Offensive talent. Overall, we're going to go with up here just because we think that Ty J Spears if he's healthy, is a dynamic threat. Uh, the offensive line on paper should be better this year, you know, with the addition of Skaronsky and then, you know, Jalen Duncan, I think legitimately you could put him at guard and compete with Roos for that guard spot. Um, you know, Brunskill, I thought was a solid addition at, at left guard. Dillard, I think, I mean, he's a better option than what they had last year after Taylor got hurt. So again, the offensive line should be better, which then, will translate to the rest of the offense being better. And then uh, defensive talent, we're just going to go even there. You know, even though they have swapped out a couple guys, like I, there's some lateral moves there, you know, long for Alshair. They, they brought in a couple DBs that we really like. But overall, like the meat of this defense is pretty much the same. Uh, and the system should be relatively the same. So we're going to go even there as well. It's pretty telling that I think the Titans are one of the only teams I've seen in the entire league that does not have a rookie penciled in right now on the very early preliminary depth charts in the first or second string of their defense. Because they kind of don't need to. Oh, they're <laughs> locked in. Now they do have, as we said, some, some moving parts, some free agency additions that will be starters. But in terms of rookies or UDFAs, None on the first or second string in defense. That's incredibly rare throughout the NFL. I mean, turnover is a fact of life. Sometimes you just need to bring in, you know, one, two, sometimes even three young players to be starters on your defense. That's a lot of turnover. Titans are absolutely steady as she goes on that side of the ball. With all that said, let's get to ceiling and floor. This is where we assign our own personal ceilings 
for win totals as well as our own personal floors. I'll start with floor for me. I think last year was the floor, and they won seven games. I, I think that that was the bottom that it could be for this organization. So I'm going to go with seven again as their floor this year because I don't think that it could possibly go worse, and they'll still win seven games. My ceiling for them is the same one that I put with the Colts yesterday with 11. For different reasons, you know, I, I think the Colts also have a very solid roster, and the 11-win ceiling uh, was primarily – you know, uh, under the scenario that Anthony Richardson is what I think he's going to be. The Titans are a safer bet <laughs> to get to 11, yes. but I also feel like the margin for error is greater because they are a thinner roster overall on offense than Indy is. You know, if Anthony Richardson goes down, you still got Gardner Minshew, right? They still have a deeper offensive line there with the additions that they made. They have a deeper receiving core by far by far deeper at tight end um they still have a dynamic running back that's you know the equivalent with jonathan taylor so like there's more talent in indy but we're kind of we're still in wait and see mode with the rookie quarterback in tennessee we know what their quarterback is but they have less talent around that quarterback so it all leads to the same ceiling at 11 wins but they get there a different way yeah for me, it's putting weights on either side of the scale, the old mm -hmm. balance scale, right? There's a much better overall offensive roster in Indianapolis, I feel like. But the quarterback position and the head coach, they're both new. Tennessee's the other way. The offensive roster, not nearly as good, certainly not as deep. The first-level talent might be equal on most parts, but not Some, on tight end. in the same ballpark. Yeah. Not on tight end and not on wide receiver, but they have an established quarterback who knows the system, and they have an established head coach who we know is is going to steady the ship. So it's, it's different weights, but I'm with you. It balances out. For me, it's one last win. Ten is the ceiling because I'm scared of that depth. It's really fragile. They could take very few injuries and have a very large swing in, in potential wins. I still think this is a double-digit win team if they stay generally healthy, just with Vrabel leading it and better health overall. And it would be hard to have worse health than they had last year, let's be honest. For Floor, it's one less than you. It's six. That, again, is if we see an injury to Tannehill early, if we see an injury to Derrick Henry early, and we really start to get into some of that depth we don't feel great about. They're having to push more young players into starting roles earlier. Vrabel's still going to drag them to probably, I should probably make it seven. I'm going to go six because I don't think it'll be worse than last year. Vrabel just doesn't seem physically capable of losing more games than that. Um, but, you know, very, very similar predictions on top and bottom for us. So overall, they're solid. You know, very solid. They're not bad. They have the potential to be very good if they stay healthy. They're solid. They're still a threat in the AFC. They're still going to give the top dogs in the AFC a game every time they play against them. You know, they're they're going against the AFC North this year. Each one of those games is going to be a knockdown, drag-out brawl. And I'm going to love every second of it. <laughs> I really am. These The Titans feel like sort of spiritual companions to the AFC North because they play 100%. very similar football. Strong running game, just knockout defense. It feels like they could, you know, transport to that division tomorrow and be like, yeah, why haven't they always been here? 
Um, so those games will be fantastic to watch. If we have inspired you as a Titans fan and got you fired up about your team, check out our clothing sponsor at homage.com. They have an NFL license, so really styles for any team. If you're a fan of a rival team checking out Tennessee's projected strength for 2023, you can go and get stuff for yourself as well. You got 20 to 30 designs for each team, t-shirts, hoodies, some of the softest stuff you'll ever wear. Use the link down in the description we get a cut of the proceeds. So we appreciate you supporting the podcast and your team at the same time. With that, uh, we'll be back tomorrow talking Jacksonville Jaguars, which I know is a dirty word to the Titans fans that are watching (laughs) this. Titans fans don't hate anybody except the Jags. So, you know, if you want to come back to the comments tomorrow and just (laughs) leave nasty messages and give us all the engagement, please do. Feel free. We'll welcome it. Uh, But yeah, we're talking Jags tomorrow, reigning division champs, you know, talking about uh, the additions they've made to potentially go on an even deeper run in the playoffs this year. A lot of excitement down in Duval. And then Friday, we're picking a division winner, which is a tougher task than you think. The AFC South is not a cakewalk, contrary to uh, popular belief. So uh, with that, we'll see you guys back here tomorrow talking Jags. And uh, until then, later. <laughs>